you guys want to come forward. So this morning, we have a really neat opportunity, one I'm very excited for, uh, to hear from Aaron and Becca Kern. So as most of you know, last year we had one of our missionary families that we support come out of the field. And so the board had the opportunity to start looking at, okay, who can we partner with now that this other missionary family has left the field? And one of the options that we looked at and chose was Aaron and Becca. I'm not going to say any more. I don't want to steal any of their thunder. But there's a passage that really uh, drove kind of the heart in desiring to partner with them. Romans 10, starting in verse 13, it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And what Aaron and Becca are going to be doing, I think, really beautifully pursues those verses. So I'm very excited for us to get a chance to hear from them and to start this partnership. So thanks so much for you guys being here. Good morning. Um, we're so, so excited to be with you guys today. Really thankful. Also cool is just a short drive across town to get here. Um, so as Sam said, my name is Becca and this is Erin. Um, and we're going to tell you a little bit about the ministry that the Lord has called us into of church planning. But we're going to start by talking about something a little closer to home, garage sailing. I don't know about you, but I love a good garage sale. And so this summer, um, I finagled Aaron to go, because I always want to go. Like, Come on, we have time. So we went garage sailing, and you never know what you're going to find, right? Could be grandma's old clothes, or smelly old books, or a treasure, you know? So it's always an exciting time. So we went to this one, and I was thrilled to find that they were young people. And the wife had like such cute clothes. So I was really excited to go through her hand-me-downs. And um, we started chatting with this couple and found out we had a few things in common. They were young, they loved the Lord, they had a baby girl really close to our daughter's age. And the husband was actually a pastor, which was random. Surprisingly, I'm sure you're shocked to hear that this is how we met Sam and Adeline today, or this summer. Um, we know that every step of our lives is in the Lord's hands, but us being here this morning really feels providential because we wouldn't be here otherwise except for that garage sale. So I'm uh, really thankful for that. Um, so just want to tell you guys a little bit of our background before we get into the future plans. Um, I was born to being being parents, which are here this morning, helping with our daughter, Hazel. There she is. She's a real cheese ball. Um, I grew up here in Mansfield, right close to Kingwood Center, and I trusted in Jesus Christ um, as my Savior at a young age. I'm really privileged to have had so many years of walking with him and to have been raised by people who love the Lord and taught me what it means to love the Lord. When I was 16, my parents moved to Tijuana, Mexico to serve with a missions mobilization ministry. So that was kind of different, but so, so cool. Um, while I was there, I attended Mexican high school and learned that immersion really does work, thankfully. <laughs> I was able to learn Spanish and served in a variety of ministries down there. After completing high school, I moved to Jackson, Michigan, where I attended a two-year chronological um, Bible program. In 2019, I moved to Missouri to Ethnos 360's Missionary Training Center, and that's where I met Erin. Um, so Ethnos 360 is a missions organization formerly known as New Tribes Mission 
that exists to just serve the church and help the local church. Ethnos 360 is all about reaching the last people groups on the earth with the gospel, especially in those hard to reach places. So they have a Bible school and a missionary training center, and we attended both of those, and we met in Missouri. Um, there, at, in Missouri, we learned all about how to learn another language and culture. We learned about how to study the way people think and understand why they do what they do. They taught us about worldview and how to write Bible lessons that are really engaging the worldview to really get at the heart. We learned phonetics, phonemics, I took linguistics, and it was amazing. But obviously, the best thing to come out of that season was this man standing right next to me, really thankful we met and he married me. <laughs> um, together, the Lord has brought us along and challenged us to serve him as church planners and an unreached people group in the Amazon region of West Brazil. Perfect. Um, yeah, so I'm Aaron. I, I grew up actually in Brazil. So as a missionary kid, my, my parents are missionaries down there. Um, right now they're back in the States, but they're going to be going back down this summer. And I'm super privileged, though, to grow up there. Um, that is an aerial view of kind of where I grew up, and that's the Amazon River, pretty much just three miles across to an island over there, and, and just an amazing childhood. I mean, we swam in the river every day and went out in the jungle, built forts looking for fruit and stuff like that, and played lots of soccer and volleyball, but all of that is just, you know, is my childhood, but the most important thing is that I was privileged to have believing parents and that I trusted in Christ at a young age, same as Becca, and I'm so thankful for all the years I've had to walk with Christ, and you know, as I think about, you know, where I am now, I'm just so thankful for, for the many years that he's been working on me, and especially, like, his grace and bearing with my weaknesses. And I feel that all the more, it seems, as we're getting ready to, to go overseas. But um, praise him that he uses us despite our weaknesses, right? Um, something the Lord has really used to challenge me into missions, though, was, you know, having grown up on the field, every year the school there would host the, the, the field conference for the, for the mission that they were part of, and that New Tribes Mission Brazil is what they call it, and it was the western sector, which basically covers the Amazon River Basin, and there's a lot of missionaries, and so they would host every year this uh, field conference, and, and it was always a sweet time of fellowship with the body of Christ, and, and getting to meet other missionaries, and so over the years, you know, I got to know these people, and I'm, as early as I can remember, I, I heard a lot of stories about the unreached, you know, along with stories of God's faithfulness and a variety of, of different indigenous works, and um, I think I would say it's like this exposure probably to missions and that specific type of missions along with the faithful lives of service that I witnessed to my parents that uh, really played a huge role in how God challenged me to be involved in missions. So then after high school, I attended the Bible Institute, like Becca had said, um, that was in Wisconsin, and it's just an amazing time of, of learning more, found more foundational in who I was in Christ and, and um, even you know growing up as a Christian kid. Still, there's so much to learn, and, and the Lord used that a lot in my life. But after the two years there, I took some time off and worked and some, got involved in a church. And then in 2018, I attended the missionary training center that she spoke of, and, and it was there that I was really equipped to go to the field. And, you know, she mentioned some, Becca mentioned some of what the training looked like, so I don't need to get into that. Um, but more importantly, we met, and the rest, as they say, is history. So um, you would think that 2,000 years after these words were written, Matthew 28, um, that it would be finished, right? Jesus told the church to go out and make disciples of all nations, and it seemed, that was like a really long time ago. 
So you would think that that would be finished by now, but it's not the case. Um, there are still more than 6,000 ethnic groups, people with their own unique language and culture. So all of us being English speakers in the same culture, we're one, right? And we're reached, obviously. Um, but there are 6,000 groups like that that don't know who Jesus Christ is. They don't have a lick of scripture, don't have a clue um, what God has done for them. Some of these groups are small, numbering in the hundreds, and some are in the millions. So the term unreached, we said that a couple times, was developed by mission leaders years ago who were trying to prioritize ethnic people groups with little or no exposure to the gospel. But sometimes they think the term unreached is just a catchword we use in mission circles or among anyone doing ministry. What they mean to say um, is that the people in view are unbelievers or they haven't been reached with the gospel. People might say, my neighbor is unreached or this section of Mansfield is unreached. And that's true that all individuals on earth who have not believed the message of Jesus Christ are equally lost. Romans 3 makes this so clear. But people across the globe do have different levels of access to the gospel. Individuals living in an unreached people group, as we're going to use the term, aren't unreached because they don't follow Christ, but because they belong to a people group that has never had a chance to hear the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. So in our minds, it's a question of access. This is a map um, of the peeps of groups of the world. The red ones are unreached, orange is minimally reached, and then it gets all the way up um, to green where they're significantly reached. So you can see there's like a crazy concentration in India and that like area of the world, like the 1040 window, um, a lot of Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, like so much need um, in that area of the world. And there's also tons of need in South America. Um, yeah, it's pretty crazy to see. It doesn't, I feel like it doesn't give like as much of a push at it as it should. But when we think about like hundreds and thousands of people represented by each dot, it kind of can hit home a little bit more. So do our neighbors and our coworkers at work here need to hear the gospel? Absolutely, we need to prioritize evangelism, but when we think about this, we remember those peoples around the globe who don't have a coworker who knows Jesus to tell them. They don't have a chance to hear the gospel even if they wanted to. We're going to the indigenous peoples of Brazil, not because we think that their souls are more valuable than our neighbors here, obviously not, but because of the huge imbalance of Christian workers going to those hard to reach places. So, oh, sorry. So, so in Brazil um, alone, there's, you can see there are 250 um, indigenous groups that, that they know of, and, and what's been done among them? Well, 19 have been reached with the gospel, right? There's uh, thriving mature churches there, and so praise the Lord for that. 67 are in progress, less reached and still a lot of work to do, though, as far as teaching and as far as, as growing the church together to maturity, which is you know, obviously the goal, and then 164 are unreached, and as, as Becca defined it there, they don't have the gospel, they don't understand anything about Christ, and then 99 of those 164 are totally unengaged, so there's not even a thought of missionary initiative in those locations, and so maybe you're wondering what do Becca and I hope to do about that, and that's what we'd like to tell you this morning, but I'd, I'd like to tell you a story um, about Jimainto and um, 
that's the name of an indigenous man in the Pacas Novos people of Brazil, and that's actually where my grandparents served as missionaries. Um, born uh, was born and grew up in the dense Amazon jungle, in the Amazon rainforest, and his parents provided for him and his siblings by um, hunting and fishing and, and growing gardens in the, in, the, in the jungle. And at this point, you gotta remember that there was no church, um, and they were running around naked, um, like basically as primitive as you might imagine. And they were um, just one among many language groups, even more at the time in Brazil, who had no, no Bible, no Christians around them or churches, anybody who was reaching out to them. And so Jimanto grew up believing that the spirits of the earth and, and the spirits of his ancestors were actively involved in his everyday life. And so that really impacted the way that he and his, and his family lived. They never walked to the, to the family garden alone because there would likely be a ghost nearby that could jump out and get you. And, and one of the things that primarily bound Jimanto and his family and his people was their fear of death. Uh, so to give you some perspective, when a Pacas Novus person died, and there's this huge ceremony to ensure that their soul remained in the afterlife, right? So um, everyone except the family, they would wail and wail for, for four days, and then they would roast and eat the body of the deceased after that, and that was what they had to do, um, as crazy as it sounds, to, to care for that person, to make sure that their soul, or you know, however they thought of it, got into the afterlife. And they believed then in the afterlife they would go to dwell in the river. Um, and if they didn't eat the body properly or for some reason something was off, you can never know. And with that, with that kind of worldview, this, this animistic kind of outlook on life, you can never really be sure. And you know, if something is off, that dead person didn't make it to the river, then he, would, he wouldn't stay there and there was no hope. Um, but even on top of that, there really was no hope because for a woman especially, um, if she made it even to the river in the afterlife, um, there was this um, evil spirit down there, Tovira, Tovira, and nobody liked him, but he was a very evil and immoral spirit, and he especially went after the women to abuse them. And so even in the afterlife, they didn't have hope. And so this is kind of the situation Jimanto grew up in, him and his people for centuries believing these things, and for the most part, um, everyone in his life believed that those same things about the spirits, the death, and the human existence. And so this goes down into the core, core beliefs and foundations of who he is, who, why he views the world the way he does. And so the Pacas Novos, they all viewed the world very differently than we do, but that was their reality. So fast forward a few years, Jimanto is now a teenager, and along comes some foreign missionaries, and among them was a 23-year-old from California, and this is like back in the, I think it was the 50s. Um, her name was Barbara, so that was my grandma. She moved into Jimanto's village and was adopted by his family. And all of a sudden, he had a new younger sister to care for and watch out for and also to watch. And it's, it's curious, you know, these guys have never seen white people before, hardly. And here she is. And so he would watch as Barbara studied his language and, and learn the ways of, of his people. And a few years after moving in, she actually met and married a, a German man by the name of Manfred, who was also in the same region. And so then he moved in and started working with the Pakasnovas as well. And together they delved into the language and culture of the people. And, and finally, when they could communicate clearly, they began to tell um, Jimanto and his family and his people about God and the real God. They called him Iriyam, which means the good spirit. And he was the one who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And, and they told Jimanto and his people how he loved the, them so much that he sent his son to die in their place. They went through the beautiful message of the gospel, and, and after many lessons and discussions, Jimanto did put his faith in Christ. Not only he, but many in his village, and in other villages, and in his family, they believed in Christ. And this started the Pacas Novos people on an incredible journey as God worked in their lives to transform 
of them and to teach them his truth. And, and no longer, then it changed them. No longer were they scared to go into the jungle alone. They didn't believe in the spirits and the ghosts. They, um, you know, they didn't think people would curse them. They, they realized that it was, you know, God was sovereign. And they didn't need to consume the bodies of their dead anymore. They realized that, and that was a lie from Satan. And, and they became healthier, uh, you know, obviously not doing that physically, but then also spiritually. And for the first time in their lives, they experienced peace. And so over the years, Jimanto became a pastor uh, in the village um, among his people. And while continuing with the Bible translation project, Manfred and Barbara eventually worked themselves out of a job as the Pacasnova's believers really took hold of this and took charge of the church functions. And they appointed their own leaders and pastors who guided the churches in their village. And, and to this day now, there's a strong, thriving church in every Pacasnova's village, which is, I think, about 13 different villages in the Amazon River Basin. So why do we tell you the story? Um, because there's millions of other stories that are just like the first half of his. People who have lived their entire lives in complete spiritual darkness and believing the lies that Satan's woven into their culture, and, and they're still believing that today. There's 164 people groups in Brazil alone with their own unique language and culture, and those people have no clue who Jesus Christ is. There aren't any books in their language, any people who will reach out to them, no radio stations or anything. We have so many resources, and I'm, and I'm thankful for that, but they don't have that. Nobody who's going to share the message of Christ. So someone's got to go, and, and we're thrilled to be able to do that. There's no other way, and because we've been entrusted with a message of reconciliation, as um, 2 Corinthians says, we need to go and share the light of the gospel. So that's what we're moving towards, Becca and Hazel and I, and Lord willing, we'll move to Brazil this June. And as your missionaries, we want to kind of give you a broad overview of what this ministry is going to look like. So there's Brazil, and that red dot there, that is where we're going to study Portuguese. That's the first step. First, study Portuguese. And I grew up, you know, learning Portuguese and stuff, and so I've been out of the country for a long time, though. So getting it back, and then Becca's going to need to learn it. And the reason we need to do that is it's very important because the Brazilian church has really taken on the responsibility of reaching the lost in their own country. And we think this is amazing. 70% of the missionaries that work with the organization that we're going with um, are Brazilians. And so that means that their language of communication with coworkers and leadership and, and consultants and whatnot will be Portuguese. And so we're looking forward to digging into the Brazilian culture and really kind of learning Portuguese well. And, and it's also there in that location that we'll likely team up with another family or a couple families or, yeah, or single individuals and people who will be working directly with us in the tribe um, from being sent from their own respective churches, probably in Brazil. Um, so then this place is where we'll move up to, the next red dot in the north. And we anticipate that time of Portuguese study in the south take one to two years, after which we'll move up there. And, you know, weaving in there, of course, coming back to the States as we need to, and there will be a time between learning Portuguese and then moving up north that we would probably come back here to the States and, and we'd get to see you all again. But um, Manaus there, that is kind of the base uh, at, for our organization where... Um, for the whole northwestern region, really, most of the Amazon River Basin, as far as it is in Brazil. And so once we're there, we're going to base out of there before we move into, into the tribe and kind of figure out a lot of the logistics as we move out. But then once we're living in a community of indigenous people, that's a, a picture of, of one of the works down there, um, we'll be able to launch into a study of their language and culture. And we've got to be diligent to learn not only their language and culture of the people, but their worldview as well. And that's incredibly important because it really only happens through relationships and living life on life. Now, worldview 
um, is very important. And it's not a term we hear all the time, so I'll just kind of define it here. But it's basically the lens, to make it real simple, the lens through which we view life and interpret it. Right? So um, it impacts the conclusions we draw, no matter how illogical. And so you think of the story of Jima and Tho, like, why would they eat their dead? Well, they have to. And you know, that's just what you do. They don't even have a second thought about it. Well, of course you don't, because why, why would you hate your family so much as to not do that? And it goes really deep. And so we want to understand the way that people think and to know why they do what they do. And then all of this work goes into preparing worldview engaging Bible lessons um, that we can then teach them and work our way to the gospel. But to bring it a little closer to home, um, how many of you are familiar with the Amish? And they're great people, of course. I think all of us, we know who they are. And how many of you though have Amish friends? I would guess probably fewer. And why that is, it makes sense because they live a separate life for the most part from from the ones that we know, and they're kind of far away. They don't have a lot of overlap with, with us in the day-to-day, and, and unless we make a point to get to, to know them and to go see them, um, we hardly ever interact. And so they have very different beliefs and different values then that stem from those beliefs than we do, and they live that out accordingly. And so they have a totally different culture. So would you say then that the Amish are a general, or in general, the Amish, and I know that's, that is a generalization, but that they are a fair representation of the American worldview? Probably, probably not. Uh, by and large, the American worldview is very different. And so, much like the Amish here would be these different peoples in Brazil. Um, very separate lives from the average Brazilian, and most Brazilians have never even seen anyone from a location like that. You know, they have totally different beliefs and values that stem from those beliefs and the faux pas and their culture are totally different than for Brazilians. And so that's why it takes a lot of time and, and diligence to really dig into the way they do life and to, to learn from them and come in as learners and learn why they do what they do and to um, ultimately we want to share the message of the gospel with them, right? But it's really possible that before we really start with Bible translation and creating lessons and all the stuff that's entailed in that, that we'd need to develop a written alphabet. and so. Just kind of giving you a step-by-step step of what we anticipate. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, often these remote indigenous people groups, they don't have a written language. It's, it's entirely oral. And so if that's the case, then we'd need to analyze all the sounds in the language and make an alphabet that makes sense. One letter per sound, try to make it not as confusing as English. You know, Think of the nightmare it is learning English for, for non-English speakers. And we don't, want it, we don't want that to be the case. And so we teach them how to read and write their own language. And, and it's a great way we can empower the people. I mean, we think of their greatest need being spiritual, but there's so many other realms of life that they, they need, including literacy. And, and we see that it's very important because it teaches them, not all, you know, among other things, it teaches them the necessary skills for reading God's word. And when we think about a healthy, mature church, it, that's a crucial piece of the puzzle because it's not a church building or fancy programs or, or any of that, but it's the word of God that transforms lives. And the Bible is God's amazing revelation to to mankind. It's the light to our feet and the lens through which we as Christians can understand the world around us and really see what's truly occurring. You know, First Timothy talks about how the Word of God is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And so then how would we be able to do that if we, in this unreached people group, if we didn't have the Word of God? And, and yeah, we have it in our language, but they don't. And so, you know, when we think about ministry in an unreached people group, that, that we're going to be a part of and that you guys are going to be a part of, it's going to be critical for them to be convinced by God's word, by him, that, you know, as they read it through scripture of these things, not just believing it because the missionaries say so, because we say so, or, or anything like that. Because it's a lot to ask for someone to change their entire belief, that belief in culture, things that they've, that they've been believing for centuries, 
you know, and they need to be convinced and wooed by the story of, of God's love for them. And so what better way to do that, you know, among other things, than to, to give them the word of God in their language. And so that's going to be a big part of, of what we want to do. And um, it's, it's monumental also when you, th when you consider generational change. And, you know, we're not going to be around forever. You guys aren't going to be around forever. But, you know, until Christ comes back, his church will be, and then we'll be with him forever. But up until that point... This church, you know, wherever we're going to be, they need God's word to continue walking the light for years to come. And so we would like to give that to them. And, and we have received some training in the weighty task of Bible translation. And, and really Wycliffe kind of are like kind of the corner of the market in a sense in that. They're, they're very, very good with that. And they do a lot of work in Brazil. And so we would love to partner with them. That actually happens a lot with our organization and with Wycliffe. We partner together. And so it's possible that we wouldn't need to do any scripture translation, but we would still do a lot of culture and language study and try to give them insight into making the Bible um, make sense to them. Um, but we're prepared to really do whatever we need to um, for what the Lord would have us to do. And it's a long process, you know. Um, Bible translation, you know, you've got to do it carefully, comparing original languages with many different translations in English. And then sometimes you have to be creative. Uh, my grandma was a Bible translator. And... Um, among the Pakasnobus, the people of Jimainto, um, they didn't have a word for love. So you can imagine how that may, might make it difficult to translate the Bible into their language. Um, John 3.16, and they're basically, in their language, says, for God did not hate the world, da 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 you know? And it's different than what we're used to hearing, but the meaning comes across strongly to them. Um, and so we know that God is going to provide wisdom for this important task if he would have us to be involved in that. And, and we're just thrilled to be used by him. But after we learn the language to a high standard, we're gonna, we gotta develop an alphabet if necessary and teach literacy and then begin Bible lessons. And, and this is really where it gets exciting in, in my mind. And you know, we, we get to explain scriptures in a relevant way to them, just as Jesus explained it to the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. So we gotta explain the scriptures in a relevant way following his example, because these people have a messed up understanding of, of the world around them, really. For, because hundreds, even thousands of years, they've, they've been in darkness. Satan has kept them in darkness. And it's common, like in Jimanto's story, to, for them to live in fear of the spirits. And so when we teach the truth of God, we want to be clear. And with any good story, we'll start in the beginning and begin with creation, talk about the incredible power of God, the preexistent one, and go through all of creation and the fall of man, the promise of the coming Redeemer. And as we continue through the story of history, will eventually come to Jesus, and we'll get to teach the, uh, present the gospel and teach of the death and burial and resurrection, and hopefully the church will be born. You know, we're, we're praying for that now. And, and then we continue to the end of the story when Christ comes back and reigns on earth and the joy that that will be. But after the church is born, I think, is really where the real work begins. And, you know, we think about our own parenting journey. You saw Hazel up there on the, on the screen, and you might have seen her back there. Um, she's a year and a half. Isn't that, shouldn't she be, you know, out of here by now, like out of our care? You know, a year and a half is a long time, and, <laughs> but that's not the case, you know. She's, you know, she needs us, and she's still with us, and so the church is going to be like our own babies, needing care and investment to thrive, and, and when we think about that, we think about discipleship, and when I think about discipleship, I really think it's, it's a lifestyle, because, um, we need to model what we want to see in them. You know, not, we're not going to do, you know, do what I say, but not what I do. You know, we need to model 
what we want to see in them. And that, that's from day one when we first move into them. If we're going to be the aroma of Christ to them, then they're going to be looking back to how am I interacting with Becca and how am I interacting with Hazel and, and vice versa. You know, how are we interacting with one another and with our coworkers and, and the body of Christ that they can see will be an example to them. And, and if we're not going to be serious about that, that's not going to be attractive. And so we as a church planning team, and we don't know who we're going to be partnering with yet, specifically like in, in the tribe, right? But we would purpose to model what we want to see in them from day one. And an example, the Lord's Supper. So say for the first Lord's Supper, like, like what do we do? Okay, so who's helping me prepare it? You know, we're wanting to involve them in this. So like, how can we include them in the decision? What food, what food are we going to eat? You know, they don't have, you know, probably grape juice down there or wine or, you know, or even bread. Like they use like tapioca starch a lot of times and, and different roots and stuff. So like the common foods that they have, it's going to look different, even just something like the Lord's Supper. And so we want to work as a team with the people, you know, bringing them in and everything that we can, and passing along responsibilities as, as quickly as they can manage it and handle it. And that, but it takes a long time, you know, as God transforms their culture from one that glorifies Satan to one that glorifies him. And this is after they're already believers. You know, they're still, you know, we don't expect them to change in an instant as they become believers. You know, the Spirit's working in their lives, and, and that change takes time, as I'm sure you've experienced in your own lives. I've certainly experienced that in mine. But we know that um, as the Holy Spirit works in the new believers, he'll, he will change their culture too. And and things like wife beating and things like um, killing the twin because they think he's an evil spirit, things like that will stop. And eventually as we pass off more and more responsibilities of caring for the church um, and empowering the local believers in doing that, we would probably continue to translate the scriptures if that's what the Lord has for us, developing curriculum and teaching them to, to develop curriculum you know, for many years. So I don't know about you, but it took me 17 years to, to be ready to to leave the house, and my parents didn't keep me in a, in a diaper that entire time, but they passed off responsibility. You know, so bringing it to this, um, this illustration, they were passing off responsibility to me, and my independence increased until I was ready to leave the house. And in a similar way, we want to empower the indigenous people in whatever location the Lord has for us, and trusting that the Holy Spirit will guide them. I mean, we're not going to be around forever, and so we want to equip them the best as we can so that they can grow mature in the Lord. We're preparing for a lifetime of service, and and we've had a lot of people ask us, you know, how long are you planning on going down there? You know, how many weeks, you know, is it going to be? And, or, you know, are you going to be down there for a couple of years? And, yeah, well, and then we kind of have to explain some of this stuff. You know, it, we don't have, it's, it's going to be indefinite for now. Because um, we don't know what God would have for us or, you know, what exact people we might be with. And so we know, though, that there will come a day when the best thing for the church is that we are not around, at least not in a full-time capacity. So we will need to phase out, you know, and if the Lord would have us to be a part of that, as I said, we would continue translating the Bible and, and developing curriculum, and, and especially Bible translation takes decades. Um, my grandma actually just passed away recently, and she, before she passed away, the Lord allowed her to see the completion of the New Testament translation in the, in the people that she, was, that she and um, Manfred were working with. But, you know, we'd be functioning in an itinerant role, um, visiting the church, yes, encouraging them, yes, but no longer being a part of their day-to-day -day life and allowing them to operate on their own, really to flourish and have, you know, the leadership be able to, to rise up and, and grow the church to maturity. You know, it's, it's like with us, right? Um, I don't know who, who began this church, but I know it wasn't, you know, Sam and, and the elders, but, but, you know, you guys have now stepped in and taken the, the role and the responsibility of that, and, and it's a beautiful thing. But... Um, some of you may be sitting here now thinking of all that we've talked about this morning. You know, that's, that's maybe cool, or, or maybe you don't think so, but what does it have to do with, with me, with, with you guys? Well, um, I want to take a few minutes and explain, or 
examine really more the life of, of one of the pioneers in our field of church planning uh, is our older brother, Paul the Apostle. Um, you guys probably know Paul's story. Um, he was a persecutor of the church, and he met Jesus in a crazy, miraculous way. God gave him his mission, right? And he was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And you can read about that in Galatians 1. It really lays that out well. But after Paul's conversion and a dramatic escape from um, Damascus, from an attempt on his life, he went into the desert in Arabia for three years. And there he just received, we don't really know what exactly, but a lot of training from the Lord, a lot of, you know, growing and Paul came out of that, and he knew that God had entrusted him with this mission to bring the, the gospel to the Jews, but as well as the Gentiles, and that was the primary focus. So what would that mean? Well, he would travel and go on his missionary journey, spreading the gospel, the message of Christ all around the known world. And this is mission from God, but we don't see Paul running off and going to do that rashly and very quickly or by himself, right? He's not a Lone Ranger Christian, because all over the New Testament we see evidence of Paul um, building relationships with the churches. He goes to Jerusalem and he gets, gets to know the disciples there. They send him out on his first missionary journey with Barnabas from Antioch, right? They, they commission them and, and then they're led by the Holy Spirit and they send him out. And then throughout his three missionary journeys, years and years, Paul makes many connections with both churches that he's planted and churches that he didn't plant, but the body of Christ. And many of these bodies of believers partnered with him in one way or another. And as Paul continued to travel all over the place preaching the gospel. So we'll hit on some of these. Romans, Romans 15, Paul mentions how he's eager um, to visit the Romans for the first time. And then in verse 24, he talks about how after enjoying their fellowship for a little while, they can provide for his planned, his eventual journey to Spain, which I don't think he ever made. But, um, you know, he's speaking of it like that. And then he also asks that they strive together with him um, in prayer. And also that he would, he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea when he goes there. He wasn't sure what, what it was going to turn out. And then um, the Ephesians. Paul had a relationship with them, too. And in chapter 6, verse 22, he mentions how he sent Tychicus to give them a report on how Paul was doing and how he was getting along, as well as to encourage them. And we see encouragement as a, a mutual part of the relationship between Paul and, and his partners. Um, the Philippians. In, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Paul mentions how he gives thanks every time he thinks of them because they had been his partners in spreading the gospel from the first time they heard it until, they, until the writing of this letter of the Philippians. And then later in chapter four, seven, uh, 14 through 17, we actually kind of see what that looked like. And for the Philippians, they were the only ones who gave him financial help after um, he first brought the good news to Philippi into that region. And so they, they continued to par partner with him over the years, and then he writes a letter to them giving thanks, and, and we, you, can, you can read that yourself. But First and Second Thessalonians, at the end of both letters, Paul asks for prayer from them. Second Timothy, he asks even that Timothy bring him his cloak, you know, in a very practical way. And so we see these throughout the New Testament, these threads of Paul's relationships. He's honest with his weaknesses and struggles. He's faithful to pray for his brothers and sisters, and he asks for prayer for himself as well. And Paul and his ministry partners together, they shared in the triumphs of ministry, and in the hard times, and they encouraged one another with the truths of Christ. And so we see this beautiful partnership depicted throughout the epistles. And, and in many of Paul's letters, we see this, this theme of mutual respect and encouragement and partnership with various churches and individuals as, as he does that. Paul was their missionary, um, and they were his churches and partners in ministry. And, and although we don't know most of you yet, um, we have a bond, you know, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we were actually blown away. When I was uh, texting with Sam, he said, yeah, the elders unanimously voted to like, bring you guys on for, for financial support. And we were like, what? We haven't even like, gone and you know, met everybody yet. And so 
thank you guys for that. We're blown away by that and that you as a church already decided to do that. You know, God is working through all of us, I think, to accomplish his goal of building his church all over the world. And so to wrap up our time here, I, I want to tell a brief story to kind of illustrate our vision and partnership here. And, and this is actually a true story. I saw a video of it recently. But there was a young mom spending the day at the beach with her four children. And all of a sudden, um, she noticed two of her sons yelling for help out in the water. And so they had gotten caught in a riptide, which if you don't know what it is, it's like a really strong current. It's really difficult to escape from. kind of takes you out into the ocean. And so the mom ran, swam out to help, but she got caught in the riptide. And so grandma swam out to help her. And pretty soon the whole family of nine was out there. And they were trapped about 300 feet offshore. And randomly, people started yelling. And 80 strangers came together and formed a human chain and reached all the way out, 300, linking their arms together and whatnot, reached out 300 feet out into the water and saved the entire family. No one died. And, you know, as we picture this rescue, I got to ask, who is who was the hero, you know, who saved the family? Was it the, the guy way out in the front, uh, way out in the end of the chain who, who grabbed the hands or the couple people who grabbed the hands of, of the drowning family? You know, if, obviously not, because if it weren't for that team working together, the family would have been dead. And that's, I think, a, a kind of a, a picture of God's design for the church. He, he brought us together as members of his own body with unique gifts and callings. You know, we're all under his headship as we work together to obey him and fulfill the Great Commission. We work together to spread the light of the gospel as the Lord Jesus works um, through us to rescue sinners. And so in heaven someday, we think that if, if the Lord allows us to present the people to him that we've dedicated our lives to, that I think your guys' names will come up too. The, the partners, you know, all is a part of this endeavor to reach these people. Um, you know, you're giving your prayers, your partnership, you know, we're the ones moving to Brazil, yes, but how many others, countless people behind, are staying behind to kind of hold the rope as, uh, you know, for, for, for those of us like, like us who are, who are going out there. And so that, that chain of prayer support and, and prayer, really, that's going to um, enable us to stay there. So we thank you guys for partnering with us. And um, as we go to proclaim the name of, of Christ in the, in the, the jungles of, of Brazil, um, I, don't, I don't know if we have time to do any questions but yeah absolutely and, and did you guys catch the one sentence he said he said after the church <coughs> is born then the real work begins if i told you to go share the gospel with your neighbor you're like oh yeah that's easy okay wait hold up they're illiterate oh well i'll just teach them the language no no, no they don't have a written language oh well i'll teach them the written language we'll work together to come up with it and then i'll give them the bible no no the bible doesn't exist in the written language because the written language doesn't exist and he said after that is when the real work begins i love that mindset i get excited about that mindset so we've got time for a couple questions any questions for aaron and becca if you want to come back forward uh questions about what they'll be doing i know this church actually correct me right you guys have history with years ago decades ago new tribes uh, we met, I think, Gene, you introduced me to some new tribe missionaries a, a few months ago who were here visiting, which is pretty cool. But any questions for them? And you know, we got some potential, some things that people have asked us in the past, too. Sure. So we'll start us off with one of those. We'll start us off with one of those and give you guys some time to think and just shoot up a hand and we'll, we'll get you there. But some people have asked, okay, so how can, how can I get involved, even as an individual? And the biggest thing is prayer, I think. We need prayer. Um, we all need prayer, but prayer, you can... You can sign up. We'll be out there in the, in the foyer um, after this, and we'll have a spot. You can 
sign up for a newsletter um, or a Facebook page, and we just kind of give regular prayer updates, especially on the Facebook page, and then through um, kind of like our quarterly newsletter. Um, we can also be a part financially, just to really care about it, and then spread the word about it is a huge thing, too. Yeah. Uh, so the question for anybody over here, he asked, what kind of communication will they have down in country? Um, do you mean like communication with y'all back here? Okay, yeah. Um, really, it it depends. Um, the Brazilian government has done a lot to like initiatives to reach out to get the indigenous peoples cell phones and stuff like that. And so as a result, they'll put up cell phone towers in random places. Sometimes there's zero connection. We're you know, hoping that Elon Musk will be able to get his Starlink up also um, so that we can get some of that via satellite. But ultimately, we don't know. But a lot of missionaries do get it via um, cell phone towers. And, and a lot of ones I know also, they're totally separated for three months until they go back into the, the town to get supplies and stuff. And then they'll go to the mission house or whatever there, get on the internet email, you know, partners, and then leave again, so. Anybody else? Oh. Question was about village population. Do you know kind of how big of areas you might be in, or does it vary? Yeah. Um, village population does vary a lot. and. Um, there's a people called uh, the Yanomami. They've, they're a very large people, and even like in the multiple thousands, I don't think millions, but many, they're, they're like the biggest ones up there, and they are so large. They've had like different tribes, different villages that have been reached with the gospel, but there's still a lot of ongoing work. Um, some villages are, there's, you know, less than 100 in a village. Sometimes there's going to be, you know, maybe a couple hundred. Often, though, they do spread out, and it's very family-based. And so, you know, you see kind of that river there, that little settlement would just be one, and then maybe like 10 minutes by, you know, John Boat or whatever, down the river, there would be another one of maybe like, even like a couple dozen or something like that. And so we'd probably be spread out in a couple of different those, those doing teaching in both. Uh, time for one more question. I guess I'll ask a question thinking from us having Violet, who said is about the same age as Hazel. Are there schools down there for Hazel? Does the organization provide? Like, what's going to happen with the family life aspect? Yeah, you know, this has been on our minds a lot. Um, initially, we'll homeschool Hazel in the village, which will be a really cool opportunity to, she'll be little and they'll have lots of little friends, and so we'll be able to do homeschooling with her. Um, and then, actually, where Erin grew up, it's an international boarding school. So if you would have told me like 10 years ago that I would have a kid and I'd be considering putting her in boarding school, I would say, you're kidding me. Um, but my in-laws run it, so you know that kind of helps. And um, we have a lot of family connections there. Great history, like lots of safety things in, in, um, installed there. So they start school at fifth grade. I'm, obviously we have our preferences about sending her like in high school or whatever, but ultimately it's up to her. Um, when, if she's 13 and 14 and all her friends are getting into um, young marriages or other illicit activities and then she's really isolated socially, then that is when it becomes really helpful to have an option to send her to a place where she can thrive in adolescence and have education that is from people other than her parents and get involved in sports and stuff. So 
that assumption. Uh, if we could have the elders and their wives, if your wives are in here as well, elders and wives, if you guys would come forward. And actually, Jim and April, Jim and April are other missionaries we support in Haiti, yeah. so they know very much what you're going through. Uh, Jim, I'm going to throw you on the spot if you want to come forward. And we're, we want to pray for Aaron and Becca. Um, we're going to pray for them. After the last song, they will be out in the foyer. Stop by, ask questions. Please talk to them, get to know them. Um, but if you guys want to come on up, we'll, we'll put hands on them. And Jim, if you could pray for them. guys let's pray dear lord i uh, thank you for today god i thank you for these guys coming here and sharing about their heart in brazil uh obviously you know missions is awesome i love missions it's very close to my heart and i'm excited for these guys as they start their journey out on the way to brazil god you know we want to reach everyone for you we want everyone to know who you are we want everyone to know your love and god you know these guys are willing to go out and do that and god we pray for them I know it's a journey. Uh, I know there's a lot ahead of them. There's a lot they don't know. There's a lot they do know. But, God, you're in control of it all. God, I pray for them for strength. Um, there are going to be times when I know things seem rough. But, God, you're in, you're in the mix of all of that. So, God, I just pray for them. I pray for their journey. I pray for their time uh, while they're in the States here as they're anticipating going to Brazil. It's a long wait. It's a tough wait. But, God, we know you'll grow them while they're here. Again, God, thank you for this time that they have this morning to share with us. Uh, we're really excited for them. Thank you, God, and you know, we pray. Amen.